Hello and welcome to As We Wait, an in-depth verse-by-verse study through the entire Bible. Join pastor and teacher Mike Scanlon of Calvary Chapel, Susanville, California, as he begins a new study in the Old Testament book of Judges. This is part one of a two-part study of Judges, chapter one. You have a few moments, so why don't you grab your Bibles and follow along? Please turn to Judges, chapter one, beginning at verse one. Judges chapter 1. It's always fun starting off in a new book. Judges chapter 1, beginning out verse 1. Now after the death of Joshua, it came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, Who shall go up for us against the Canaanites first to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have delivered the land into his hand. And Judah said unto Simeon, his brother, Come up with me into my lot, that we may fight against the Canaanites, and I will likewise go with thee into thy lot. So Simeon went with him. And Judah went up, and the Lord delivered the Canaanites, the Perizzites, into their hand, and they slew them in Bezek, ten thousand men. And they found Adonai Bezek in Bezek, and they fought against him, and they slew the Canaanites and the Perizzites. But Adonai Zedek fled, and they pursued after him, and caught him, and cut off his thumbs and his great toes. And Adonai Bezek said, Threescore and ten kings, having their thumbs and their great toes cut off, gathered their meat under my table. As I have done, so God hath requited me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and there he died. Now the children of Judah had fought against Jerusalem, and had taken it and smitten it with the edge of the sword, and set the city on fire. And afterwards the children of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites that dwelt in the mountain, and in the south, and in the valley. Judah went against the Canaanites that dwelt in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron before was Kirjath Arba. And they slew Shishai and Ahalaman and Talmai. And from thence he went against the inhabitants of Debir. And the name of Debir before was Kirjath Sefer. And Caleb said, He that smiteth Kirjath Sefer and taketh it, to him will I give Aksa my daughter to wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, took it. And he gave him Aksah, his daughter, to wife. And it came to pass, when she came to him, that she moved him to ask of her father a field. And she lighted off her ass, and Caleb said unto her, What wilt thou? And she said unto him, Give me a blessing, for thou hast given me a south land. Give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the nether springs. And the children of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up out of the city of palm trees, with the children of Judah, into the wilderness of Judah, which lieth in the south of Arad. And they went and dwelt among the people. And Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they slew the Canaanites that inhabited Zephath, and utterly destroyed it. And the name of the city was called Hormah. Also Judah took Gaza with the coast thereof, and Ashkelon with the coast thereof, and Ekron with the coast thereof. And the Lord was with Judah, and he drove out the inhabitants of the mountains, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley because they had chariots of iron. Gracious Father, once again, we thank you for your word. Once again, Lord, we ask that you'd be the one to teach us that by your spirit, Lord, you would reveal the meaning of these things and how they apply to our lives. 
We look to you for instruction today, Father. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Just a little bit of background on the book of Judges. Judges is basically a continuation of the history that began in the book of Joshua. Uh, This book gets its name from the 12 men and the one woman who were called judges over Israel. Between the death of Joshua and the time of Samuel, there was no particular national leader, no one person that kind of consolidated that power and gave direction to the nation. In fact, these 12 judges, as we go through the study, we'll look at where they come from, and they only actually judge portions of Israel, almost like even tribal areas. They're scattered all over the country, and we'll see that uh, basically none of them directs the entire nation at any particular time. The book of Judges covers a time period of about 325 to 400 years, depending on who you listen to. And so it's a, it's a fairly short period in the life of the nation of Israel. The book is probably, I can't say for sure, but probably written by the prophet Samuel. Joshua was the last author that we know of in the book of Joshua. And then as we pick it up in 1 Samuel, or actually you know, Joshua judges Ruth and we get to 1 Samuel, uh, Samuel is probably the author of the book, but again, we can't say for sure. The interesting part about this book, if you read the whole thing, you see that there's going to be seven different cycles that are going to repeat themselves. It'll happen seven different times, and it's kind of a, a sad book in that respect, that we see the nation do a number of things over and over again, repeating their mistakes. They'll start off serving God and, and walking rightly with God. Then they begin to compromise. They begin to do evil. Then eventually they forsake God. They begin to follow their own ways, the ways of the world, the ways of pleasure. And eventually after that, they're sold into slavery. And they end up in a depression and war. And as they're kind of beaten down, if you will, oppressed, they begin to cry out to God. And as they cry out to God, they eventually turn to God. After that, we'll see them repent before the Lord. The Lord will raise up a judge, and then they'll be delivered. And they think, cool. And then they walk with the Lord a little bit, and then boom, down they go. And we see this cycle repeated seven times over the length of this book. And the thing that bothers me the most about this is that I see myself at times walking with the Lord, doing good, and then falling flat on my face. And the Lord kind of bringing me to my senses and repenting of my sin and getting up and going a few more steps, then boom, down we go. And as we walk our Christian walk, we learn, hopefully, (laughs) from these mistakes. Hopefully we can learn from the mistakes that we read about in this book. But sadly, in many ways, this book exemplifies what we read in Proverbs in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 34, that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And again, we can see this even in our current times. We see our own nation, that God, I think, ordained the pilgrims, everybody else that came to this country, that they started off wanting to serve God and to love God and to honor him, and the blessing that comes from that. And we see that we're in the midst of this cycle even now, turning away from God and, and things that will come from that. The final verse of this book seems to describe the gist of the book in a very general way. In Judges chapter 21, verse 25, In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And it's an interesting thing as we go through this book. One of the things that we're going to see is that essentially there's no mention of the word of God. Going through Joshua and backing up to Deuteronomy and the other books before that, the word of God was the central theme of the book. It was a constant reminder Take heed to the Word of God. Be obedient to the Word of God. Read the Word of God. Get into the Word of God. Everything was seemingly focused around the Word of God. And depending how we respond to that, there was either the blessing or the curse that would come with or without that. In this book, we're going to see these cycles, but we're not going to hear the Word of God even mentioned. 
and you'll see the fruit of that as we go through. There is, however, a redeeming quality in this book that I have to admit didn't see at first because you get so focused on these cycles. You get so focused on the nation stumbling so much. I lost sight, anyway, of what God does and how God does a certain thing. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised has God chosen, yea, and the things which are not, to bring to naught the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. And what I'm getting at is that while we look at the nation of Israel and their constant stumbling and fumbling and bumbling and all the things that happened because of that, there's also the judges that God raises up at different times to deliver the nation. And we look at the lives, we look at the character, the personalities of some of these judges, and you realize that God used some very ordinary, in fact, extraordinarily ordinary people. He used the foolish, he used the weak to deliver the nation. And I like that. As we get through the book, Ehud says he was a left-handed man. And there's a story that goes behind that. But he was a left-handed man. The, the right hand was the, the hand of strength and power. A left-handed guy was considered weak or even not so good. And so God uses a, a left-handed man. You get to Shamgar, who uses an ox goad to kill 600 men of the enemy. He uses, again, a weak, foolish guy with you know, an ox goad. It's like, well, why not get out a sniper weapon or a bow and arrow or something effective? No. And it's like he eventually gives Samson the jawbone of a donkey. It's like, okay. God does some extraordinary things. He uses Deborah, a member, of, if you will, of the weaker sex. He takes Gideon, basically a coward and a guy that doesn't really want to do anything. And he pairs it down to 300 guys. They're going to go against an army of 120,000. He goes, oh, by the way, you're not taking spears and swords. You're taking pots and a torch just to show the world that it's me that did this and not you. And so we see in this, to me, the redeeming part of this, the subplot, if you will, is God's faithfulness, his love, and his mercy. God using the weak and the foolish things, using men to accomplish his purposes in mankind. And I like that. I mean, as much as I, I don't like seeing the nation stumble, because, I, again, I relate to it too well, and I see our nation in the midst of that, the part that I do like is that God is even in the midst of all that to use men for his own glory and for his own purposes, and that it works out pretty cool. Well, looking now at verse 1, it says, After the death of Joshua, Joshua starts out the same way, after the death of Moses, and so it's just a continuation of the history. Now after the death of Joshua came to pass, the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, Who should go up for us against the Canaanites first to fight against them? So the children of Israel inquire of God, presumably through the high priest, which was Phineas, the son of Eleazar at that time. If you remember back to the book of Exodus, the priestly garments, they had the breastplate with the jewels for the 12 tribes, and then they had the Urim and the Thummim. It was a little pouch with a, presumably a white stone and a black stone. And basically they would use these things kind of like, and I hate to say it, but kind of like dice. And they would draw lots. They'd ask a question, they'd, they'd reach in and pull out, and the white stone meant yes, and if it came out black, the black stone meant no. And so I'm sure they went try by try. Well, does Simeon go? Nope. Does Reuben go? Nope. Does Judah go? Yep. Okay, send Judah. And so we're not 100% sure how they did that, but that was a likely scenario. And then we get to verse 2. And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I've delivered the land into his hand. I like this. That it starts off pretty good. The children of Israel ask of the Lord. They inquire of the Lord. And the cool part is God answers back. Don't you like that? I mean, wouldn't you like that if you ask God a question, God, you know, what about da 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 and then right away you heard a voice from heaven, okay, you shall go left, or whatever. And so it's indicative of their relationship at the moment anyway, that God does in fact respond to them. And he responds that Judah will go out first against the Canaanites, and that they've been given the victory. 
I like it because he tells them that they're going to win. And the name Judah itself means praise. And so we can praise him even before the battle because the victory is won. Paul writes to Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 5.24. He says, Faithful is he that calls you who also will do it. And the fact that the Lord called them to go out against the Canaanites, that he said he's going to give them the victory, means God is going to fight that battle. And again, as I repeat oftentimes, God's commandments are his empowerments. When God guides, he provides. And so he's providing them with the victory. Then we get to verse 3, and we begin the compromise. And Judah said unto Simeon, his brother, Come up with me into my lot, that we may fight against the Canaanites, and I will likewise go with thee into thy lot. So Simeon went with him. Judah turns around right away and asks Simeon to accompany him. And at first glance, this doesn't seem so unreasonable. I mean, they all kind of got together and conquered the land in general. But here God has said, Judah, you're going to go out. You're going to get the victory. And so God assures them they got the victory. What's the first thing he does? Uh, Hey, bro, coming with me? What he's displaying is a lack of confidence. God has said you've got the victory. If God has said you've got the victory, who else do you need? And it's very much like what we read about later on with Gideon. You know, he had an army of 30,000, and God, no, 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 that's way too many. You'll get the glory with that. And so he pairs it down to 300, and then he practically disarms them. Okay, now I know I'll get the glory. Well, God said to Judah, go get them. And Judah turns around, okay, hang on, let me get uh, more people to come with me. And what it is, it's a lack of faith. It's a lack of understanding of the will of God. God never mentions anything about Simeon. And if God has given Judah the victory, what do they need Simeon for? And again, I'm reminded of what Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3, verse 3. He says, Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? If God has said, here's how it's going to happen, can we add to God's plan and expect it all to just be hunky-dory? I don't think so. And what this is, is they're deviating away from God's Word. And that's what we're going to see throughout this book, that they begin, it starts out gradually. This is very subtle. I mean, this is not like a, a gigantic thing, but it's subtle, isn't it? that they just didn't quite do exactly what God said to do the way God said to do it. And we'll see that through the book. Back in Joshua chapter 23, verse 6, he says, Be ye therefore very courageous to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, that you turn not aside there from the right hand nor to the left. Sometimes we get the idea, well, as long as we keep the big points, as long as we do the main things, then we'll be okay. You know, Don't worry about so much about the details. I'm here to tell you that God is into the details. And when he gives us specific instruction, he intends for it to be carried out that way. Then we get to verse 4. And Judah went up, and the Lord delivered the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand. And they slew of them in Bezek 10,000 men. I was thinking about that. In some of the previous battles, we know that many more men died at one time. But, you know, when we hear a news report that 15 Marines were killed in Iraq or Afghanistan, they go, wow. 15 or 20. And, and you know, the first day of the D-Day invasions during World War II, they lost almost 10,000 guys just the first day. We're not accustomed to casualty reports that involve thousands. We are so sheltered and and spoiled in our time. You think about the Battle of uh, Gettysburg, 55,000 men dying in just a few days. That's here the same thing. It's just big numbers. Then get to verse 5. And they found Adonai Bezek in Bezek, and they fought against him, and they slew the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek is the king of Bezek, and Adonai means Lord, and Bezek, his name literally means lightning, so he's like the Lord of lightning. That's a cool name, like sons of thunder. So he must have been a tough hombre. Get to verse 6 and 7. 
And Adonai Bezek fled, and they pursued after him, and they caught him and cut off his thumbs and his great toes. And Adonai Bezek said, Threescore and ten kings, seventy kings, having their thumbs and their great toes cut off, gathered their meat under my table. As I have done, so God hath requited me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and there he died. When they got a hold of the king, cutting off a thumb means you can't grasp a sword because you need that opposing thumb, you know, the limb to do that. Cutting off his big toe meant he couldn't run. He couldn't plant his feet in battle. And so basically they've taken him and incapacitated him in terms of being able to wage war. The hard part is that that's not what God told him to do, is it? God didn't say go out there and cut their limbs off so they can't fight against you. God said get out there and wipe them out. Kill them. Eliminate them for different reasons. Adonai Bezek knows in a sense that he had it coming. He says, you know, I, I did the same thing to 70 other kings, and he kept them under his table and fed them scraps, a way of humiliating them. And so basically what goes around comes around, and a biblical spin on that would be Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. He says, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. He that sows to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. So if we're sowing to our flesh, if we're sowing hatred and malice and envy and jealousy and strife and those kinds of things, then we should shudder at what we would reap because it'll lead to our corruption. But God's word doesn't need to be a terror to us because the last part of verse 8 there in Galatians chapter 6 says that, but he that sows to the spirit shall the spirit reap everlasting life. And so if we're sowing kindness and gentleness and peace and love, then the result is going to be life everlasting. But again, in a certain sense, what goes around comes around. Reaping is an interesting thing. It's never done on a one-to-one basis. Reaping is always done in an exponential basis. And what I mean is you take one apple seed, it doesn't just give you one apple. You plant an apple seed in the ground, and theoretically you get an apple tree that will then produce thousands of apples. And so if we reap to the Spirit, we reap a lot more. We get a lot more, don't we? That's what heaven's all about. But if we reap to the flesh, then the same thing applies. Simply killing Adonai Bezek would have been obedience to God's word, and that would have also hindered his ability to make war. <laughs> and so I, I think that, uh, I'm not sure what, what they're doing, but again, there's this subtle compromise in the obedience to God's word. Then in verse 8, it says that, And now the children of Judah had fought against Jerusalem, and had taken it and smitten it with the edge of the sword, and set the city on fire. They conquered and they burned Jerusalem, but they didn't occupy it. And it was subsequently reoccupied by the, the Jebusites who remained there until the time of David. But again, previous chapters in Joshua laid out specifically what the territory, the area, the inheritance was for the tribe of Judah. And it didn't include Jerusalem. <laughs> they went outside of their area. And I think it's cool in a way that they went out and conquered Jerusalem, burned it and all that kind of stuff. But again, what were they doing? They were going beyond what God told them to do. And so whether you take away from it or you add to it, <laughs> we find ourselves you know, in trouble. In verses 9 through 15, we have the tribe of Judah basically turn southward. They turn towards Hebron and Debir, and they conquer those areas. Verse 9, And afterwards the children of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites that dwelt in the mountain, and in the south and in the valley. And Judah went against the Canaanites that dwelt in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was Kirjath Arba, they slew Shishai and Ahiman and Talmai. So they slew these three guys, funny names, but these were all sons of Anak. They were giants. These are the guys that everyone was afraid of. And even though it says that the children of Judah did this, it's pretty much attributed, as we know, 
from the book of Joshua that Caleb and his family are the ones that went up and kicked some serious butt and got these guys out of there. This was a formidable thing. This is something that it's a bright spot in these chapters because we see that, that Caleb is obedient to do what God told him to do, and he's victorious because of that. In verses 11 through 15, we'll just read them real quick. From thence he went against the inhabitants of Debir, and the name of Debir before was Kirjath-Sefer. And Caleb said, He that smiteth Kirjath-Sefer and taketh it, to him will I give Axah, my daughter, to wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, took it, and he gave him Axah, his daughter, to wife. And it came to pass, when she came to him, that she moved him to ask her father a field. And she lighted from off her ass, and when she gets off her donkey, basically it's a sign of respect to her father. You know, not talking to him from the top of her animal, but getting down and actually just talking to him, I guess at face level or whatever. And Caleb said unto her, What will you? And she said unto him, Give me a blessing, for that thou hast given me a southland, Give me also the springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the nether springs, or the the lower springs. And this is repeating the story that we, I mean, it's almost word for word what we read in Joshua. And again, we see the typology here where Caleb is a type of the Holy Spirit. And he prepares a bride that he eventually gives to the conqueror, Othniel. And Othniel, his name means God is powerful. He's the one that conquers this pagan city and all this stuff. And so the, the conqueror is given the bride who's been prepared by, quote-unquote, the Holy Spirit. And then this Holy Spirit then gives not only territory land, but he gives living water, flowing water. And so you see the typology there. But the point of this particular story being repeated at this time isn't so much about the victory in the land as the character of the man. Because we're starting to see a pattern here with the children of Israel. As I pointed out, we're starting to see where they're, they're beginning to compromise in the word of God. They're beginning to give partial obedience as opposed to complete or full obedience. And you know, partial obedience is disobedience. I mean, let's just lay that out. Partial obedience is not obedience, okay? And a lot of people think that, well, I can keep these parts, pick and choose parts of the Bible and call that obedience and then be disobedient to other parts. Well, that's in God's eyes, that's disobedience. So, Why is this story repeated at this time is my question. And I think the answer is is because as we go through this, some people are going to make the excuse, and maybe some of us at times, that there's no way we can really be obedient to everything that God's Word says. You know, maybe there's just certain people that are kind of gifted that way. They got the ability, the spirituality or whatever, just to kind of be obedient. And God says, no, we're all able to do that. And Caleb is a good example. In Numbers chapter 14, verse 24, remember describing Caleb, but my servant Caleb because he had another spirit in him, has followed me fully. And him will I bring into the land wherefore he went, and his seed shall possess it. Caleb isn't picking and choosing what parts of God's word he's going to be obedient to. He's obedient in all things to the Lord. And God uses him as an example now because the people are doing the opposite. And basically God is saying, it is possible to do this. (laughs) It is possible to be obedient by the power of the spirit, that different spirit, to be obedient to my word. So there's no excuse for sin. Caleb followed the Lord fully. He did everything God called him to do. And because of that, he was blessed. And we can do the same thing because we have the Holy Spirit living in us. We can be obedient to God's word if we're simply willing to be willing. I like what the writer of Chronicles says in Second Chronicles 16.9. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of them whose heart is perfect towards him. That's my prayer for me and, and for all of us, that our hearts would be perfect before the Lord, loyal to him, ready to serve him with a willing heart, and that, that we would have the same victory that, 
Caleb had. Then moving on now to verse 16. And the children of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up out of the city of palm trees with the children of Judah into the wilderness of Judah, which lieth in the south of Arad. And they went and dwelt among the people. The Kenites, if you remember, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, their descendants were basically nomadic herdsmen. Initially, they'd been invited to join in with the children of Israel, and they kind of, nah, no thanks. But later on, they must have changed their mind, because now here they are. And being guys, nomadic, wandering around the desert and so forth, at some point, they must have camped out in the ruins of Jericho, the city of palm trees, and then they move on. And so they move on to the place around Arad or Arad. And uh, I actually got to camp out there about a year ago and hike out there. And man, talk about a desolate place. I mean, unless you know where the water is at and all that kind of stuff, you're in big trouble. And so these guys valued that land because it is good for cattle and stuff or for small herds. Verse 17, And Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they slew the Canaanites that inhabited Zephath and utterly destroyed it. And the name of the city was called Hormah. Also Judah took Gaza with the coast thereof, and Ashkelon with the coast thereof, and Ekron with the coast thereof. And the Lord was with Judah. This is an important point. And the Lord was with Judah. And he drove out the inhabitants of the mountains, but could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley because they had chariots of iron. And so the tribes of Judah and Simeon combined. They take these various territories and stuff. But then we get to the last part of verse 19b, if you will. They could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley because they had chariots of iron. It's like, you know what? That's not why they couldn't drive them out. I mean... They'd already gone up against armies with lots of chariots, lots of horses. Chariots of iron is not the issue here. Okay, the issue is one of faith. Well, that's all the time we have for now. You've just been listening to pastor and teacher Mike Scanlon of Calvary Chapel, Susanville, California, teaching part one of a two-part in-depth study of the first chapter of Judges. Please join us again next time for part two as we begin our study through the book of Judges and through the entire Bible. As We Wait is an outreach ministry of Calvary Chapel, Susanville, California. We pray that you are blessed and we'd like to invite you to join us in person. Calvary Chapel meets at 450 Richmond Road on Sunday mornings at 830 and 1030. Our Wednesday evening service begins at 7 and communion is celebrated the first Sunday of each month at 6 p.m. To get the entire study on CD, please call the church office at 530-257-4833. And if you've made a profession of faith and would like more information on what it is to walk with Jesus or want to know how to grow in your faith, we would love to hear from you. You can write to us at P.O. Box 1316, Susanville, California, 96130. All our services are streamed live on the web at www.ccsusanville.com. Until next time, may the Lord richly bless you. You make me strong.